Tis the season to be jolly and joyous. Fa-la-la, with a burst of pleasure we feel it arrive. It's a season when the saints can employ us. Fa-la-la, to spread the news about peace and to keep love alive. That little ditty is from one of my favorite Christmas movies, which is a Muppets Christmas Carol. And I almost didn't start off with this little Christmas serenade because we have a heckler in our midst. I sang just a few lines last Sunday of a couple Christmas carols to get us in the Advent spirit. And by the time I got back to my seat, I had this little gem waiting for me in a text message. For those of you who can't see what we're giggling at, uh, this is the classic Bing Crosby Christmas album, White Christmas, but instead of Bing's handsome mug, it's my goofy face (laughs) smiling back at us. It is a white Christmas indeed. You can pick up the Christmas mixtape at the Welcome Center. Joking, but thank you, Jason Comerford. You gave me a good laugh. I am unapologetic. I love Christmas carols. But I am also picky. I like classic theological Christmas hymns, the God rest ye merry gentlemen. I do not like Christmas pop. All I want for Christmas. No, Mariah Carey. And I am no fan of Santa songs. You better watch out. You better not cry. Mm Mm-mm. No shame if you like those songs. They're just not my thing. You see, I'm a child of divorce, and when I was growing up, my parents had joint custody, so I bounced back and forth between two households each week, and especially during the holidays. And while we had similar traditions in both homes, I could discern subtle differences Since my mother and my stepfather who raised me were believers, they were people of faith, and my father and stepmother were not. For example, with my mom and dad, every Christmas morning, we would read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. And then our our special gift, our last gift on Christmas would always come addressed from baby Jesus. And in my dad and stepmom's household... We would also start off our festivities with a reading, but instead of the Christmas story, it was the 1823 poem, it was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And our final gift, our golden gift, our climactic gift was signed, it was addressed from Santa Claus. And... For me, it kind of created this sort of sacred, secular division and dichotomy with the infant Jesus on one side and Saint Nick, that right jolly old elf and his sleigh and his magical flying reindeer on the other. And we're in the midst of an Advent series where we're looking to unpack the symbols we've come to associate with the celebration of Christmas. And our charge last week was to reinfuse the familiar with meaning so that we might experience God's grace afresh. And I want us to discover anew what these cherished images and, and rituals have to teach us about God's character and God's coming. 
so that this Advent season, our hope might be stirred, our, our expectation rekindled, and our passion for our soon coming Lord, that it would be fanned into flame. But before we get too much deeper into this series, I feel like we have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is the big guy in red, St. Nicholas. How did this man come to so dominate our holiday iconography and play such a big part in our commemorating of Jesus' birth? And some of the story is exactly what you'd expect. It has to kind of do with the domestication and the commercialization of Christmas and how American department stores kind of shot, sought to shift the center of our, of our holiday observance from the, the church and the manger to the living room and to all the, the stuff, the, the dolls and the red rider, red rider wagons. Wow, red rider wagons. <laughs> And BB guns that they were trying to sell us. And uh, I think that kind of part of the story is a little sad. (laughs) So I don't really want to explore that piece. It's kind of what you would expect. But I will say that they were remarkably effective. (laughs) Because now for most of us, the climax of the season isn't our corporate worship together on Christmas Eve. It's unwrapping presents together beside the tree But what I'm really curious about is why St. Nick was even there for advertising companies to appropriate in the first place. You see, St. Nicholas only became the Santa Claus that we know about 200 years ago. But for a thousand years before that, this faithful Christian brother was someone who came quickly to mind when a fellow believer pondered Christ's coming in Bethlehem. Why? Is there anything meaningful or valuable or fruitful in the example of St. Nicholas for us to recover? And you might know this sort of investigation thrills me. I'm a very history-minded person, and we get to meet this morning another one of what Scripture calls a member of that great cloud of witnesses, those heroes of the faith who've run the race before us. So let me introduce you to Nicholas of Myra. Nicholas, his name in Greek means victory for the people. And he's this Christian of of Greek origin, Greek descent, who lived in ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He was born about 300 years after Jesus in a port city called Patara that gets mentioned in the book of Acts. It's the wealthy capital of a region called Lycia. Lycia. Again, my tongue this morning. Lycia. Not that you're going to go there or remember how to say it. But it was an old stomping ground of the apostle Paul. But we call him St. Nicholas of Myra because he spent most of his life and his ministry in the nearby much smaller town of Myra. It was a poorer town, and he would minister there almost his entire life in a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. And I find Nicholas so fascinating because he's not necessarily honored for his words, Nothing that he ever wrote survives. He's not celebrated for how he died. He wasn't a martyr, though he did endure 
for a season, brutal persecution. Instead, Nicholas is remembered for how he lived, how he announced and embodied the heart of Christ in tangible ways. Now, we call him Saint Nicholas, but all Christians qualify for that title. Like you and I, he was one of God's holy ones. He was set apart for God's love and purposes. And and history actually records that he was by no means perfect. He had the heart of a shepherd. He was zealous for the Lord. But this, our guy had some rough edges. Uh, Famously, he even spent a season under church discipline after he was kicked out of the church council of Nicaea the council that came up with the Nicene Creed. And he was uh, kicked out for inappropriately losing his temper. There was an Egyptian church leader named Arius who was trying to convince the gathered Christians that while Jesus was like God, he was not actually God in human flesh. And Nicholas saw this for the betrayal of the gospel that it was, and he grew so frustrated and upset about Arius spouting off false teaching, that he uh, walked up and slapped his brother in the face. So maybe a more historically accurate Santa song would not be, I saw mama kissing Santa Claus, but I saw Santa slapping heretics. I don't know. But many of the stories preserved about Nicholas are of a different sort entirely. This is a man who devoted his entire life to his church and his community who was willing to suffer like Jesus so that he might serve and love others in his name. The accounts that come down to us tell of his his bravery and his faith and his generosity. And interestingly, most of the stories have to do with his advocacy and intervention on behalf of those wrongfully incarcerated and condemned in the corrupt Roman legal system. He was kind of the ancient world's Brian Stevenson, if you know that name, if you ever saw the film uh, Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan. Stevenson's this kind of, in our day, this Harvard-educated Christian lawyer who tries to save those wrongfully convicted from, from death row. And I feel like Stevenson and Nicholas would be kindred spirits because a lot of the stories are about his advocacy for justice. Yet none of this really helps us explain Nicholas's association with Christmas. So to make those connections, I need to tell you another story. When Nicholas was a child, both of his parents uh, died in an epidemic that just kind of ravaged Asia Minor. And so orphaned at a young age, he was essentially raised by the Christian community of Patara. And his parents had been devout believers. They had been active in their local church. They were these wealthy merchants who had converted to Christianity and then had dedicated their lives and their fortunes to advancing God's kingdom in their little corner of the world. And young Nicholas, he's left with this just huge inheritance And in honor of God and his parents' legacy, he was committed to giving it away strategically and anonymously in ways that brought glory to God. And the most famous story relates to Nicholas's next-door neighbor there in Patara, 
who was a Christian widower with three beautiful daughters. And apparently this man had been rich and influential, but through some risky ventures, through some poor management, he had lost much of his fortune. And poverty loomed on the horizon. And dad, who I call Fairweather Charlie, was having a crisis of faith. He could see no way to secure his or his daughter's future. You see, in those days, women found financial security through marriage. But to secure a match, a woman, a bride needed a dowry. A dowry was the sum of money that a woman brought to the marriage to help defer the costs associated with her her new husband, her prospective husband, assuming full financial responsibility for her in a culture that didn't allow her to earn income. So our guy... Nicholas's neighbor has three daughters, but he squandered each and every one of their dowries. And now, unwilling to trust God, he hatches a scheme to get himself back in the black. Kind of reverting to his pagan ways and values, he intends to traffic his daughters into sex slavery to sell them off to the local brothel. And Nicholas had known this man his entire life. These young women were his peers, but their dad was becoming a serious piece of work. And obsessed with preserving his own kind of financial standing and surrendering to fear, this neighbor resolved to just pitch everything out the window. His faith, his conscience, his sense of morality, his public witness in order to save his own skin. And so there's devastation that is coming for these vulnerable young women until something was pitched through their window. A small bag of gold. The exact amount required for the oldest sister's dowry. Now, the money had been tossed through their window at night, and apparently it had landed in one of the girl's stockings or shoes that had been hung by the fire to dry out overnight. So have you ever gotten a little bag, whoop, whoop, hey, look at that, a little bag of gold coins in your stocking? That's why. Some traditions say that it wasn't a little bag of coins, but it was a little gold ball. So some of you grew up getting these in your stocking. Or the far more delicious, orange chocolates. And this is why. Because this is the gift that, by God's grace, ended up in this girl's stocking one evening. But the question becomes, how would the backsliding father respond? Would he grasp that money for himself? Or would he, because of this unforeseen grace, would that lead him to repentance? And this is what we read from Nicholas's earliest biography. When the man who had been shown this mercy found the bag 
When it had become day, he was seized with joy and with ungovernable tears, and he gave thanks to God with amazement and astonishment, wondering in himself from where so great a blessing had come to him. The father of the girls, after receiving this bride price, in belief that it had been provided to them from God, and considering that the godsend was a sufficient contribution for a dowry, Without delay, he contrived a marriage for his first daughter, having acquired for her an honorable life with joy and pleasure, granted by the mediation, unbeknownst to him, of his young neighbor, Nicholas. So seeing that the outcome had been positive, that had brought glory to God, Nicholas snuck back the next night to toss a second bag through the window. And in the morning, he's just next door. He can hear his neighbor again praising God in a loud voice. So you can probably imagine what happens next. He prepares a third bag to throw through the window through the third night, for the third night. And dad resolves to stay up and stake out the window to see if he can discover who kind of God's angel of generosity is. So that's late at night, the bag comes in, it clatters to the floor, and dad goes busting out the front door, chasing after his unknown benefactor. And Nicholas nearly got away, but inexplicably he stopped to munch on milk and cookies. No, that's not how it goes. But that is actually the origin of your kids staying up late to catch Santa, is this father's vigil to find who was God's grace in his life. And when the dad sees that the source of God's generosity was the Christian orphan living next door, he lets out this final exclamation of praise. And I have it on the screen for you. If our common master Christ hadn't stirred your goodness, we would have long ago destroyed our own lives by a shameful and destructive livelihood. I don't like him using we. I feel like he was the one destroying his daughter's lives, but we would have long destroyed our lives by a shameful and destructive livelihood. But as it is, the Lord has saved us through you, most blessed one, and rescued us from the filth of immorality. And so we ought, like a debt, to give thanks all of our days, because God stretched out a hand of help to us and caused the poor to rise from the ground and raise the destitute up from the dunghill through your generous and truly wonderful gift. Do you discern any connection here with the Christmas story? Any parallels coming to mind? Any vulnerable young women visited by divine grace? Any marginalized person whose future was miraculously overturned and hope secured by the unexpected work of God? Any God stretching out his hand to help us, causing the poor to rise up from the ground and raising the destitute from a dunghill by his generous and truly wonderful gift. It makes me think 
of the Virgin Mary's radical song of praise there in Luke chapter 1 when she celebrates the baby that is growing in her womb. She says, and we read, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Last week we said that this holiday symbol of a light shining in the darkness was reminding us that the Christmas story is a new creation story. This week, I think the symbol of St. Nicholas reinforces what Mary is trying to alert us to, that the Christmas story is a revolutionary story. It involves an overturning of our backwardness. It's an outbreak of justice in our sin-sick world. It's our rescue from poverty and oppression And it's all accomplished by means of radical generosity. God giving his only begotten son. And it benefits most those at the bottom, those who've been forgotten and trampled down by society. This is exactly what Jesus emphasizes when he begins his ministry. Just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke. We read this here in Luke chapter 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus, and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. While Christ's coming is good news for all of humanity, it is especially welcome and restorative news for the poor and the marginalized. And notice in the Christmas narratives who it is that receives these good tidings of great joy. It's the elderly priest with no future security. It's the barren woman cloaked in shame It's the pregnant teenager surrounded by scandal, the lowly carpenter 
in a shaky and tenuous position. It's shepherds despised by their community. Theologians call this God's preferential option for the vulnerable. God is their advocate and defender. They are forever on his mind. Thus, in a unique way, God's arrival is for them. Nicholas has something to reveal to us about the heart of Jesus. His attention, it was focused on the nameless and the nobody. His society would have grieved with the rich man who had experienced this devastating change of circumstances, but they would have ignored the fate of his vulnerable daughters. But it's for those three that Nicholas burns with compassion. It's for those three that he sacrifices his inheritance. True, his Christ-reflecting generosity, it overflows to the benefit of the Father. It brings glory to God. It magnifies his name in the world. But it rescues those young women, snatching them from the hand of those who would take advantage of them, securing for them a future and a hope. And it rebukes a culture that regards them as invisible and expendable. It proclaims to them the incredible news of God's advent. Now, Nicholas died on December 6th of old age during the reign of uh, Emperor Constance, who was the son of Constantine. And on the anniversary of his death every year, the church, especially those who were his friends and his parishioners, They chose to honor his legacy on December 6th. And they did this by this practice of putting stockings or shoes by the fire and filling them with gifts and candy. This is how they chose to remember his holy example. And it was such a popular and helpful tool to direct the church's eyes towards the Lord that it became a regular part of the winter celebrations. And the church in those days also discovered that these rhythms were were good preparation for the celebration of Christ's birth, for the proclamation of that revolutionary story of radical generosity. When the God of the universe chose to divest himself of his inheritance to save us from destruction when he gave everything to secure for us a place in God's family and a future in God's love. What does Paul say in Philippians? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
it makes sense to me that these two traditions would start to blur together. It makes sense to me that in the run-up to Christmas, we would see Christians dressed as Nicholas, clad in his red bishop's robe and his red bishop's hat, ringing bells in the street, inviting believers to show God's generosity to the poor and to encourage them with a jingle and a smile to announce and to embody the heart of Christ in tangible ways. And as I consider this second symbol of Christmas, I see no need to kind of cut out, to excise the image of St. Nicholas from our celebrations. But don't make the mistake our culture makes. He's not a secular replacement for Jesus. He's a, a sacred figure. He's a fellow beloved believer who points to Jesus. He reminds us of the costliness of God's love. And our costly call filled with gratitude for us to love as Jesus loves. So we're going to end our worship today with another symbol, a tangible little ritual that reminds us of the costly love of Christ. We're going to meet at the communion table. And can I have an elder uncover the elements in the back? God has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. counterintuitive. We think fulfillment comes through a feast, right? We think it is the amount of food that will cause us to be full and satisfied. But it's not the amount of food. It's what we eat. For man does not live on bread alone. What we truly need is God coming down from heaven to be the bread of life, to be our nourishment. And one of the gifts that Christ has given us is this holy ritual, this symbol, to say, come And partake. Come and remember what it cost. We think it's a great cost for someone to give up their inheritance to save a neighbor. See what it cost me to save you. Take and eat, for this is my body. Come and drink, for this is my blood poured out for you. He will send the hungry away filled. He will send the rich away empty. What does that mean? The rich are used to feasting. 
They're used to having more than enough. And God says, even in all of your abundance, that is not what you truly need. What you truly need is not to live a good life. What you truly need is not security and finances to leave to your kids. What you truly need is me to rescue you and save you and preserve you for all eternity. So maybe you'll go away empty so that you can realize your need to come and be filled. Fill up on nothing this Christmas season, but that which truly satisfies and that which truly saves. The broken body of Christ, his shed blood, so that we might be washed clean, that we might be protected from the just wrath of God that we deserve, that we might be adopted in to his family, kept forever in his love. And you might not like rituals and symbols and traditions. We like to live up here in our heads. But I think Jesus in his grace gives us these tangible things so that the message goes from here to here. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. The shed blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, drink in remembrance and celebration of his love. And we'll end this worship with a reading from the Psalms. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, even godly ones, in a son of man in whom those, there is no salvation. Put your hope in the Lord God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Praise the Lord. Amen.